Hey everyone, and welcome back to Storytellers, where we are exploring simple truths with eternal impact through story. Now we are in week six of seven of this podcast where we have been taking a deep dive into the art and importance of storytelling in scripture. We've been learning about Jesus's use of parables in his teaching, and we've been pairing these stories and parables with real life stories that are happening right here in our own community. I'm your host, James Savage, and if this is the first time that you're here, Welcome. I'm so glad that you've decided to hop on this journey with us. I do recommend that you pause here and go back to episode one. I would not want you to miss on those parables and the teachings and the stories that we have already shared. With that being said, let's begin week six of Storytellers. All right, y'all, I wanna begin today by asking a big philosophical question. What makes us human? I mean, other than the whole opposable thumb thing, the ability to make tools, what does it really mean to be human? What the Bible teaches is that different than the rest of creation, you and I were made in the image of God. Genesis 1:27 reads, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I don't know if you think about this often, but we were made, you were made in the image of the living God. And that is an imprint that humans have that no other aspect of creation can claim. But what exactly does it mean? Now, it doesn't mean that you and I look like God, like God definitely has two ears and two eyes and nose and a mouth. What it really means is that we as people reflect, at least in part, who God is. Our ability to feel compassion, our desire for redemption, our longing to show care, even our ability to think rationally and pursue truth and justice are all reflections of our Creator. Now, to be clear, we are not gods. You're not a god, I'm not a god. But as His beloved creation, we bear His image. Now, this is critical when we consider the divine calling we have as God's image bearers. We are called to be stewards and co-rulers in this world. That is a wild idea, but it's what scripture teaches. See, after God created humans in his image, in the following verse, Genesis chapter 1, 28 says this. It says, God blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You and I were not created by accident. We were created on purpose to care for God's creation. A main theme throughout the entire Bible is God bringing order out of chaos. The creation story in Genesis chapter one and two are all about God doing just that. Because God chose to rule his creation through partnership with humans, you and I are invited to participate in bringing this chaotic world back into order. With God's help, we get to take part in restoring peace, purpose, and direction to God's creation. A good story helps us get started in doing just that. A good story can take chaotic and random, seemingly unrelated information and situations and order them into something that has meaning. Sharing the story that we are living gives meaning as to why and how we are living our lives. 
We are drawn to hear each other's stories and share stories because our heavenly father is the grand storyteller and we are made to feel the same way about those stories as he does. Our desire for stories is a reflection of his heart for storytelling. So how we see ourselves, our lives, our beliefs, and our behaviors, they flow from the story that we believe to be true about the world. A question that we must ask is, what story am I believing? What story am I living? Now, we rarely do this consciously, but every time we see a commercial or get an ad that comes across our feed, every time we have a conversation or listen to a song, even read a book, we participate in a story which has a direct impact on how we see ourselves and our lives. There are countless stories vying for our attention and ultimately our allegiance. The Bible claims to be the one true story of the whole world. It also claims that there are enemies of this one true God that are spinning a different story. Our world and culture tell a story of self-preservation and self-centeredness, feeding our own appetites and even hedonism. Stories reflect their storyteller. So pay attention to the stories that you are letting in. The story that our world provides may seem enticing at first, but you and I both know this, those stories often lead to desperation and regret. So let's ask ourselves, does our heart long for a storyteller that is motivated by ego and appetites, or does our heart long for a storyteller motivated by grace and truth and redemption? You know, the brilliance of Jesus's storytelling is that he's calling us back to the true story of the whole world, one passage at a time. He used parables to teach us who we are and how we fit into his story, to reveal the heart of the Father, helping us see that he is not just a storyteller, but the master storyteller in human flesh. There might not be a better example of this than the parable of the lost son. This parable is located in Luke chapter 15 and comes as the last of three parables, all telling a story about something lost being found. Go back to episode two and you'll hear how we read the parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost son speaks to each of our desire to feed our appetites, even to our own detriment. It also speaks to the moment when we realize that we've messed up and our desire to want to come back home. So let's read the parable of the lost son. You can find it in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. I'm gonna be reading from the message translation. Then Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what is coming to me, speaking of his inheritance. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a different country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all of his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. Well, that brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. 
I'm going back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as your hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, now alive, given up for lost, now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Let's stop there. After this episode, I encourage you to keep reading this parable. It continues a little further by telling the story of the older brother's reaction. It dives even deeper into the compassionate heart of the father. Before we move on, I want to point out just a few things that we saw in this parable. For one, did you notice how the father ran out to the son before the son ever confessed? He had that speech prepared, but the father ran towards him before the son even had the opportunity to bring his confession and repentance. Now you tell me, what is Jesus teaching about the heart of the father? Did you also see how the father didn't say anything to the son? Do you know why that is? Because once the son had repented, everything that needed to be said had been said. When the son was quick to repent, the father was quick to forgive. Now you tell me, what is Jesus teaching about the heart of the father? Did you see what the father did when the son came home? He got a family ring, put it on his son's finger. He got sandals for him. He said, let's go slaughter a cow and throw a party. Now that ring is really important because it signifies to the son that the father is refusing to see the son as a hired hand. He is restoring the son as a member of the family, not bringing on a servant. There are different scholars who have different interpretations as to exactly what the sandals mean. But what is clear is that the sandals were not worn by servants. It was another physical representation of honoring the son as a family member. One of the coolest details in this story is that the father asked for a cow to be slaughtered so that they could start their party. Now, it seems a little excessive. So far in the story, we've been introduced to the father, the sons, and we know that there are some servants. But an entire cow would feed maybe up to 100 people. So why would the father do this? Because the party was not just for the family. The party was for the community. He wanted to make sure that the community knew not only was his son home, but he was welcoming his son back into his family. He was not embarrassed to present his son as a member of the family again. So you tell me, what is Jesus teaching about the heart of the Father? Y'all, we could do an entire series on this parable alone. There is so much to be gleaned from it. That's why I hope during this week, you read and reread it, continuing to ask that question, what is Jesus teaching me about the heart of the Father? But for right now, I want to introduce you to today's storyteller. His name is Rich Ward. 
Now, Rich is a part of the Dixon campus, and he's known around the Dixon community for being a trustworthy, kind, hardworking man who goes out of his way to serve other people. A few months ago, he reached out to me and said, James, I'm ready to tell my story. Now, I thought he was going to talk to me about his battle with cancer and how that has interacted with his lifelong faith, but I was wrong. Cancer is only a footnote in Rich's story. I had no idea about the story that he was about to let me in on. The trauma he had experienced, the regrets he had walked through, and the redemption that he had lived. He is a true embodiment of the story of the lost son, a living example of someone who chose to come back home and found the grace of the Father. All right, I guess the beginning of my story is I was raised in a Southern Baptist family. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My parents both sang in the choir. I was in the youth choir growing up, and I didn't really want to do any of that. But they drug me to church every Sunday, every time the doors were open, we were there. And then, of course, I reached a point in my life when I got a little bit older, and they couldn't drag me to church anymore, and I, and I quit going. I didn't, I didn't want to. And I encourage parents to drag their kids to church, whether they want to go or not, because there's no doubt that that foundation, that I heard it, whether I was listening or not, I heard it. And as I went through some really troubling times, future in, in my life, that, uh, that I knew God was there. I didn't like Him sometimes, but I knew He was there. And I, and I think that carried me through some of those times. I went to college. My sophomore year in college, I got a girl pregnant that I barely knew. But back in the 80s, when you got a girl pregnant, you married her. So uh, I was there on a baseball scholarship. I gave up my scholarship, dropped out of school, got married. And we realized pretty quickly that we didn't know each other, we didn't like each other, and we were both kids when we were 20. So that marriage didn't, did not last. And uh, shortly after that, I met another woman who was so kind to me when I felt so horrible about myself. And uh, we got married shortly after my divorce. And a few months into our marriage, she became pregnant. We were so excited, and I have a little girl. And uh, I had gone back to school, was playing baseball at Trebekah, and I had a big game, big game one day. And I called her up, and I was like, hey, you going to come watch the game tonight? She said she was tired. She, she didn't think she could make it. She was tired. She's seven months pregnant at the time. I guess it's, it's okay. I'll see you when I get home tonight. Well, of course, I step out on the mound for the first inning, and there she is sitting there cheering me on. Had a great game. And then uh, when we were driving home, I was following her. We had two cars there. I was following her. She fell asleep at the wheel and swerved over and hit a truck head on. And uh, you know, I jumped out of my car and went over, and I kind of pulled her out of the car. And crazy thing, our pediatrician was driving the other way and saw the whole thing. And she got out and started an IV on my, my wife. And so they life-fighted her to Vanderbilt. And the policeman drove me. When I got there, the chaplain met me at the door. And he said, I have to tell you, you've, your, your baby's gone and your wife's probably not gonna make it. But my wife was tough and she made it. And uh, I felt so guilty for having her come to that game when she didn't want to. And uh, she felt guilty for falling asleep. And we both, it got to the point where we couldn't be around each other. Every time I saw her, it, I, I was so sorry what I did to her. And I started drinking a lot. 
And uh, one day I just left. I just walked out the door and got drunk and stayed drunk for about eight years. And uh, when the alcohol wouldn't ease the pain, I found other things that would. There's probably very few things that you can snort or drink or pop that I haven't done. Never injected anything. I don't like needles too much, but I did about everything else. And uh, of course, it's hard to function in life when that's your life. You can't hold a job, but you still have to have money and the depths that you'll go to get that money. Uh, eventually, I got hooked up with a guy that was a drug dealer, and I started transporting drugs from Texas to Tennessee. And uh, the same person also ran a prostitution ring, which I got involved in the prostitution ring. I was not a prostitute, but I was the strong arm that made sure the girls got where they were supposed to get and got paid and got out. Got into some very hairy situations. I can't tell you how many times I've had a gun to my head. Woke up in the middle of the night one time with a gun in my mouth. When you get into that world, you don't leave. You either get killed or you go to jail. I mean, there's there's not an exit. And I knew that. And uh, so my mom found me for years. I mean, I hardly ever contacted my, my family. They didn't know where I was. They knew I had a little basement apartment that I was staying in sometimes. A friend of the family would let me stay there, but I never knew where I was going to wake up from one day to the next. And uh, so my mom found me. I was at my little basement, knocked on my door, and, and she's like, son, somebody's trying to get your attention. Somebody's trying really hard to get your attention. How much are you going to have to lose before you'll listen? And at that point, I mean, it felt like the only good thing I had in my life was a little boy that I completely ignored through his whole childhood. But I knew he was there, and I knew he was something special. My weekend visits, he spent with my parents because I was never around, and I was the worst father that any kid could have. And, man, he's turned out to be an amazing, amazing kid. I don't know how. He had every, every excuse to turn out rotten, but he's not. He is an incredibly, incredible kid. Um, but anyway, the next day, my dad finds me, and he says, love you, son. You can come home anytime. I need you to know, though, you're killing your mother. You're killing her. You're all she ever thinks about. She prays for you all day, every day. My dad was a man of few words, very strong, very stern. And, and uh, for him to track me down and say, you know, it, he's very protective of my mom, always was. And he said, you're killing my wife. You're killing your mom. You can't do this anymore. At one point, I actually had a friend of mine set a gun down on my coffee table and say, look, you want to die. You know you do. You're just too scared to do it yourself. That's why I, I kept putting myself in positions that were going to be unlikely that I got out of. But every once in a while, I'd call home, and my mom would cry. And she's like, we love you. We love you. Can you come home? And... It helped and it hurt at the same time. I always knew at any point in time I could walk back into that house and I was going to walk into open arms. My dad was probably going to give me some grief, but uh, but I knew that I was going to be welcomed and they were going to love me. And whatever I had done, they didn't care. So when I went to work that night, I went to the went to the to the van and just told him I can't do it anymore. I'm done. My heart's not in it. I just can't. 
And he says to me, well, you know, I can't let you leave. You know too much stuff. And I told him, I said, you know, I've never lied to you. I've never cheated anybody. I've never been dishonest or unfair to anybody through this whole ordeal. And I promise you right now, if you let me walk out the store, your name will never leave my lips, ever. And it hasn't. <laughs> but uh, I fully expected to turn my back and get out that door and get a bullet in the back of my head. When I was kind of writing my notes out to prepare for this, the title of this chapter was The Day I Was Prepared to Die, because I really thought I was going to. But I didn't. And I walked out of there and still was a mess. <laughs> I, mean, I was still addicted to drugs and alcohol. And, but, but I moved into that little tiny apartment, that little basement apartment. And I made it my home. And I managed to get a job. And it's, I look back now, I'm a, to me, it's amazing how functional I was as an addict. I mean, I was able to, I got a job with, at Home Depot at the time. And I grew, and I excelled, and they promoted me, and I was department managers, and and then they uh, put me on a team t to build stores. I started traveling around, building new stores. I mean, my life was going good, because I was still getting high and drinking every night. But I was able to manage. Um, I got transferred to Hampton, Virginia, and uh, failed a drug test. After climbing that ladder, I failed a drug test. That's something I've never told anybody. I've told a different story about how I, why I left Home Depot. Uh, but I moved back to Nashville, and I got a job at Tractor Supply. Same thing. Worked myself up as a manager. And uh, they transferred me to Dixon, which is a really funny story if you want me to step back a little bit, because I had gotten arrested. I'd lived in Dixon before and had gotten arrested and uh, for drugs, and I was on probation. When I got the word from Home Depot that they were going to transfer me over to, to Virginia, I wasn't allowed to leave the state because I was on probation. And I went to my probation officer and told her what was going on. And she's like, man, you because I had to take a drug test every week. And I mean, she said, you're doing great. And you've got all your community service in. You're doing great. She said, I'm going to approve for you to leave. She's under one condition. You'd never come back to Dixon. You're not welcome here anymore. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So then I go to work for Tractor Supply, and I'm, I go through a few stores around the Nashville area, and then I get transfer papers going to Dixon. I'm like, nope. <laughs> the regional manager came in. It's like, what's up? I was like, I can't go to Dixon. <laughs> but I ended out, ended out back there. But it, it was supposed to be a two-year stint. I was just there to kind of turn the store around. When my two years was up, by then I had met my youngest son's mother, and we got married. And he wasn't supposed to be born. That's where I was kind of going with this. He, uh, she was on a pill. We weren't having kids. So he's that, that one in .001 that happened. And one of the things I feel the guiltiest about in my life is that I, for four years, I referred to that little kid as my little accident. How mean is that? When he was four, I was still drinking a good amount, smoking pot every once in a while, nothing. Not like major. I'd really gotten things together a lot better. I smoked heavy. I was like a pack and a half a day smoker. And uh, September 28th, 2008, Titans were playing the Vikings. And my little boy was sitting on the floor playing a game. He had a carpet that was this football field. And he'd take all the men, his, little, his guys, he'd all call my guys. He'd take his guys and he'd watch the play on TV and then he'd run the play on his little rug. And uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant kid that his mind's always going. I mean, he's, but he, uh, a TV commercial for that 
pill, the quit smoking pill came on, and he stopped what he was doing, and he watched that commercial. You know, it's just testimonies of people that quit smoking. He looks over at me and says, Daddy, you promised me you'll quit smoking. I'm like, I will, I will. I picked that little boy up and set him on my lap and go over withdrawals and habits and uh, <laughs> all that stuff that I'm sure this little four-year-old boy is understanding every bit. And he just looked up at me, and he gave me this phrase that every time he says it, I know I'm in trouble. He says, Daddy, I don't get it. That means he's figured it out, but there's something about Daddy that doesn't fit into the equation. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? I just explained everything to you. He said, well, Daddy, you tell me I have to keep my promises. Bam. I got two other boys in that house that have been telling me for years, you're going to die. You stink. You know, it's... <laughs> and uh, none of that mattered. But when your four-year-old calls you a hypocrite and he's right... Kind of changes things. I, I set those cigarettes down that day and never touched another one. And about two months after that, he was sitting in his floor playing, playing with his guys. And he looked up at me just out of the blue. He went to daycare at First Baptist Church there in Dixon. And he walked, looked up to me and said, Daddy, why do my friends at school get to go to this thing called Sunday school? And I don't get to go to Sunday school. I was like, well, do you want to? It's not going to be the same as daycare. You're not just going to go and play. And he's like, no, I want to I want to go. I want to try it out. Okay. So the next Sunday morning, we got up, and I dropped him off at the Sunday school class, and I had to waste some time. So I sat in the back of the church. wasn't listening. I had my phone out. I was just wasting time until Sunday school was out. It was over, and we didn't think anything about it. Really didn't talk much about it. Just went home, went on with our with our week. The next morning, or next Sunday morning, I hadn't set an alarm, I didn't do anything, but I woke up to this. Daddy, Daddy, you taking me to Sunday school? Like, okay. <laughs> so I got up and I took him to Sunday school. And that little boy did that every Sunday morning for months. I never set an alarm. I was hungover most of the mornings anyway, but I took him. And I, I remember one particular Sunday morning that I was kind of slouched down in the seat doing something with my phone and I was on the very back pew. I swear I felt, I felt a fist reach into my chest and grab my spinal cord and just jerk me up in my seat, set me up straight. And I looked up and that preacher was pointing at me. He was pointing at right at me. And he said, you need to understand that there's nowhere you've been. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've said or seen that is so bad that God can't forgive you and he loves you. Man, those words hit me. Because I know where I've been and I know what I've done and I know the harm that I have done to so many people. I couldn't forget myself. That was the day my world changed. I went home, went to my wife and, and told her, I said, you and I both know for years we've known there's something missing in our lives. You know, we, we don't have what either one of us want in a marriage, but I know what's missing, and I know how we can fix this. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Um, I don't blame her for our divorce one bit. I never have, because by the time we got to that point, I was no longer the man that she married. I mean, I'm a completely different person than I was prior to that, and, and she loved the man she married but he wasn't there anymore. He didn't exist anymore. So uh, Carter and I, my little boy moved out and stayed in a little farmhouse. Just and we, had, we, had, we had a pretty good life between the two of us. And I told you how ashamed I was about my calling my little boy uh, an accident. Well, that when he was four and all that stuff happened, 
he wouldn't become an accident anymore. I realized that day that God put that little boy right where he was supposed to be, right when he was supposed to be there. And uh, yeah, he saved my he saved my health and then he saved my soul. I wasn't dating. I didn't want to date. I was just happy being me and my boy. And I broke a tooth. I called a buddy of mine who I knew his wife worked for a dentist, and I went and they pulled out my broken tooth and, of course, found 15 other things in my mouth that needed to be fixed. So I went back the week later, and they did something, and I went back a week later, and they did something else. And about the third or fourth time in there, the receptionist stopped me on my way out. And she's like, I don't know you. You don't know me. But I just have a feeling that my best friend would be perfect for you. So she gave me her number. Uh, I called her, and the next week we went out to dinner, a completely blind date. We didn't know each other, barely talked to each other, but one time on the phone, we spent three hours at the little Camino Real Mexican restaurant there. And about an hour into it, I knew that I was in love. And uh, I've always said, God sent me an angel right when I needed one. Anyway, I met Jan, and she went to Cross Point. I was still going to the First Baptist Church. so. Basically, she said, if you want to spend more time with me, this is where I am. I'm like, okay, <laughs> here I am. We got married four months after we met. Got engaged two months later, got married two months after that. And, and I tell you, I had a song written for my wife for Mother's Day, and it's called Thank God for Broken Teeth. <laughs> um, life has been great. But when we got married, she had, was dealing with some health issues. She had blood clots in her brain, and she was struggling a lot with that, and but we were able to hold each other and love each other and through God, uh, got her through that. And uh, then we had a couple of pretty, really, I hate to say easy, but just smooth. Life was good and everything was going our way. And I think one of us even at some point made the comment about, man, this is almost too easy. And then in February, 2021, I got diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And I said, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I went through weeks, months of chemo and radiation. And then I, then I had to have my part of my esophagus and my stomach removed. In my December, I was declared no detectable cancer. That's what they call it, NDC. And so I went from having scans every two months to every six months, just as a precautionary. Well, they did tell me that this type of cancer tends to come back. Some, you know, but it's usually years down the road. Well, six months later, mine had come back even stronger than it was before. It had metastasized into my adrenal glands. And supposedly, once it does that, it never goes away. You just have to keep treating it for the remainder of your life. And for anybody that doesn't know this, chemo is not fun. It's not fun, but I'm yet to share a tear over it. I worry about my wife. I worry about my kids and my sisters and my mom. Uh, but I know regardless which direction this thing goes, I'm going to be okay. I don't worry about it one bit. I get tired sometimes. I don't feel good sometimes, but I keep going. And, uh, and it's because I know who's steering the boat. I learned that it's okay for me to mess up. I never, I, I didn't feel that way. I always felt like when I did something wrong that, you know, the lightning bolt was going to get me or something. But no, I, through this, I learned that I'm, not only is it okay if I make a mistake, I'm actually expected to. Uh, it's it's going to happen. No, it's only been one perfect man that walked this earth, right? And I and I learned that I I didn't. I want to keep trying to grow, but I don't have to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect as hard as I try, so I quit trying. Um, I, and I and I learned because the, the lifestyle I was living was me. 
it was a me lifestyle. Was, I want to have fun. I want to do this. I want to do this. That's not me anymore. I I, I want to help people. I do I do everything I can. I I try so hard to love everybody, and and I don't. But I, I think I I'm pretty close. <laughs> I want to let God speak through me. I want kids that are going through a hard time to know that there's a chance to get out of it. And you don't have to follow that road. You don't have to. You can you can get out. I mean, I, I, I've counted back over a dozen times in my life that I should have been dead. I've been in, I've been in horrible car wrecks, walk around with this, walked out with a scratch on my pinky and a mild concussion, and the car was destroyed. But I walked away from it. I've been threatened. I've been shot at. I've been... It's, I, I literally shouldn't be walking here today, but I am. Because talking about the timeline to the end of my story, it's not over. It's not over. I mean, I've got cancer. I'm, technically, I'm dying, but I'm not going to because my story's not over yet. God's had plenty of opportunities to take me home if he wanted to, but he doesn't. I'm here, and I'm here for a reason. I'll tell you one of the things I'm great, so grateful for in life is that my dad get, did get to live long enough to see me get my act together. He got to see me with my, my current wife, who was certainly a blessing from God. And I, uh, yes, I've sat down. I, n- I never have told them what I'm telling you today. Um, I think it would break my mom's heart. And she realized I haven't, I told her what I'm doing. And, uh, and I've asked her not to watch it. I think she probably will. And she said, I, I, she said, I think I can because I know that that was who you were. That's not who you are. And I guess I've heard it said, you know, we're not defined by our actions or we're defined by our character. Um, yeah, no, we. I, I was very uncomfortable going into details other than they knew there was about eight years of my life that is referred to in my family as the, as the dark ages. <laughs> Um, but it's part of who I am, and it's. I know that God's put me through the things that He's put me through for a reason and for years. And I've kept this buckled up for twenty years or more. But I know that there's a reason that I went through that chapter in my life, and I think when you know when James and I talked that first time, he's like, "Man, you uh, you need to like do a prison ministry." You can go into prison and talk to these young guys, and you can tell them there's hope. There's hope. You don't have to. You don't have to stay this way. You can. You can reach out. You can reach up, and and you can be saved, and you can live a good, clean life. You don't. You don't have to do this. Been there, done that. There's very few people that have been as deep and far down as I. Have. I guarantee you, there's very few that have ever gotten out. Got to tell about it. I had a when I was still going to the Baptist church. I sat down and I was for a long time. I've been feeling the need to to have this conversation. Uh, I've been fighting it and fighting it. But uh, the pastor there, Mike Miller at First Baptist Church, invited me to lunch. And I didn't go into details with him other than to say, you know, I did some pretty awful things and I've seen some things that no eyes should ever see. And he just looked at me. He's like, "Does your mom still love you?" I was like, "Oh yeah, she does." What about your kids? Yeah, yeah. You think they've forgiven you? Like, sure. And uh, what about your your other friends and family? Anybody? Do they know you? They they love you? They've forgiven you? I'm like, yeah. He said, buddy, all you got to do is forgive yourself. That you're the only one that's still holding on to all this. And uh, you got to let it go. You you have to forgive yourself. 
And I guess that was true. And I still don't know that I fully have. I still have regrets and I still have guilt. Because I know that my actions hurt people. I know they did. And that's hard for me to live with. But I'm not there anymore. I mean, where I am in my life right now, I mean, God introduced me to a fine man named Bill Joyce that uh, is the owner of the company that I work for. I've been there nearly 20 years now. But when I went to him, I didn't have anything. He hired me and plain and simply said, if the, the more you do for me, the more I'm gonna do for you. And I'm in the best place I've been in in my life. I mean, cancer at all. I'm in the best, they, that family, they walked me through, through divorce. They walked me through, I mean, everything. I think that God puts you in places to succeed and it's up to you whether you succeed or not. I look back now and I know that he was there, even in my darkest moments when I didn't think I could take another breath. I didn't know it then, but I know it now that he was, he was there and he was making sure that I got to this point in my life. I don't know about you, but my faith is bolstered by hearing Rich's story. Rich, thank you for your vulnerability and your courage to share. God is glorified by the way that you share your story. So as we wrap up week six of this podcast, I invite you to sit with the parable of the prodigal son, to mull it over and to ask over and over, Jesus, what are you teaching me about the heart of the Father? As we close out this episode, let me remind you that we are all a part of a story that fits into God's bigger story a story he is still writing in my life and in yours. So as he reveals to you how your story fits into his, we'd love to hear about it at crosspoint.tv slash share your story. Now, if you've been listening since week one, you may have become used to hearing me encourage you to share your story, but I really hope that you do. It may sound cheesy, but when we share our story, God gets the glory. You sharing your story may be the one thing someone needs to have the courage to come back home. You can follow along with our Storytellers Sunday series at crosspoint.tv and check out our show notes to see questions that will help you go deeper into the parable of the lost son. I hope that you like and subscribe this podcast. And if this episode has meant something to you, I hope that you share it. You can even tag us at crosspoint.tv. And if we see your post, we may have the opportunity to repost your post. Now, next week, I invite you to come back for the very last week of the Storytellers podcast. We're going to look at a parable that teaches us about the heart behind giving and hear an incredible story from Crosspoint's own Marissa Martinez. Check this out. I did an experiment. For one year, everything that came in, I gave 10% back to God. And for me, that looked like my church. And you know what? Within a year, I had given around $4,000 to the church by simply sticking to the practice of tithing. And the even crazier thing was that not only did I not miss that money, but I still had plenty to sustain and live on. He was my sustainer. Now, please understand this. This was not an easy task or a perfect discipline that solved all of my financial challenges. But what it did was teach me to surrender And it also strengthened my faith tremendously in God as my provider, as my comforter, as my sustainer. It also taught me stewardship that has lasted me over eight years now. 
it's, again, not a perfect discipline. And it can look like 8% to your church and another 2% to a nonprofit or a local good partner that you're passionate about. It is mainly the act of surrendering what you think is good for the great that God has for you. 